1599, Shakespeare wrote a play about the assassination of Julius Caesar. From a historical perspective, we're only a little farther from Caesar than he was. But he was only working off of one specific source, Plutarch. Plutarch is an incredibly important Greek and Roman historian who was born in Greece in 42 AD. And at that time, the fourth Roman emperor had just taken the throne, and there was no one alive who remembered the assassination. Here, in 2019, we use a couple more sources, especially Nicholas of Damascus, who lived during the assassination, even though he was in Greece. And because Shakespeare's is a dramatic work, it tends to flatten out some of the characters, and it omits others, and it turns one specifically more or less into a villain. It's not exactly history, but oftentimes it's not the historical facts that define our memory of the narrative. Things like plays and historical old wives' tales can have more of an impact than the truth ever could, because they're more compelling. And in that sense, the play has probably taught more people about Caesar than any history podcast could hope to do. First of all, even though the play is named Julius Caesar, the play is really about the assassination. It starts about a month before the Ides of March and ends with the death of Brutus. So in spite of the name of the play, Brutus is definitely the main character. And there's some artistic liberty with characters. Caesar is just returning from his campaign against Pompey's son in Spain. He is brash and arrogant and self-important, but still insightful and wise. He's just the most important man in Rome, and he knows it, and some Romans hate him for it. The biggest way that we see Caesar be arrogant is in his disregard for omens and the snubbing of the soothsayer. The play seems to imply that the whole world was shouting out that Caesar was about to die, and the only ones who missed it were Caesar and his supporters. This is a common trope in ancient history. There are historical figures all throughout the history books, quote-unquote, that are ignorant or actively ignoring some omen or another to their own destruction. So Caesar is playing into a very old trope when he acts this way. Decimus, one of the assassins of Caesar, plays almost no part in the play. He is incorrectly named Decius Brutus, and he's relegated to a background player. This isn't totally Shakespeare's fault. This is really Plutarch's fault. Plutarch really did not like Decimus, and in Plutarch's own telling of the story, he paints him as a coward and leaves him out of large pieces of the narrative. The public in general turned against Decimus as sort of the villain of the assassination because he was the highest profile person who Caesar didn't defeat in battle, who wasn't an official one of Caesar's enemies. But in the play, he does convince Caesar to come meet the Senate with him on the day of the assassination. Decimus's absence leaves the stage open for Cassius and Brutus, and it gives Cassius kind of the villain treatment. Even though Caesar is made out to be kind of arrogant and unworthy of the power that he has, 
Cassius hates Caesar for sort of more personal reasons. And he works to really manipulate Brutus. These signs of a population that were uninterested in Julius Caesar and who wanted Brutus to rise up against him were Cassius's manipulation in Shakespeare's telling. Cassius leaves a note on Brutus's chair, he throws a rock through Brutus's window, and he paints the graffiti around town. All of those signposts that led Brutus to think maybe it was an okay thing to assassinate Julius Caesar. Brutus is almost cast as a foolish idealist. This is often how he gets cast by history. And in some senses, it's sort of the historical flattening that was done to Cato. Brutus proclaims his love for Caesar many times, but simultaneously is constantly torn by distress over what Caesar has done. At one point, he shouts at Cassius for taking bribes and then immediately asks Cassius for more money. And the question of Mark Antony comes up, and he's equivocal. He doesn't want to kill him, and he wants to make peace with him after the death of Caesar and allow him to speak at Caesar's funeral. Mark Antony is given much more of a starring role in lining up people against the conspirators. Brutus lets him speak at Caesar's funeral, so long as he will say nothing bad about the conspirators. And so Mark Antony repeatedly says, Brutus is an honorable man, but simultaneously bemoans the good that Caesar had done and the idea that Caesar had to die sort of allowing the population to draw its own conclusion about Brutus and the assassins. In actual history, Antony took kind of a back seat at this time. He just sort of tried to put the Republic back together. It wasn't until Octavian was elected consul that the assassins became really persona non grata. But Octavian doesn't show up a lot in the play. He is a little bit as part of the triumvirate, the second triumvirate after the conspiracy, and then he goes to the Battle of Philippi. But you don't see the back-and-forth struggle with Antony and Octavian. It's just kind of a subtext or a, a sideshow to the major struggle. And the other big character in the play is Servilius Casca. He did not come up in our episode on Brutus. He plays an important role of being a trusted friend of Caesar, kind of the role that Decimus played in real life. But since Decimus became Decius and was relegated to a side position, Casca got the star treatment. The real way that the play departs from history is in the timeline. The play compresses a lot of time, both to save on long months of not too much happening and I think especially to save on locations. So it starts a month before the Ides of March. And Brutus and Cassius have not entered into any kind of conspiracy yet. Brutus is still brooding, considering what he should do. And Cassius starts trying to convince him about a month before the assassination. And the soothsayer who predicts that Caesar should beware the Ides of March. This is a common historical misconception, and it's kind of a sensible one. Plutarch, the source that Shakespeare is drawing on, 
has a seer saying that harm will come to Caesar no later than the Ides of March. He gives a full month window. But since the assassination happens on the Ides, Shakespeare is not the first one to just do away with the month and simply say that the Ides are the warning day. Speaking of well-known quotes, there are a few from this story that Shakespeare invents or popularizes. Beware the Ides of March. That was cemented into the public consciousness by Shakespeare. Et tu, Brute, is another one that had already been in the popular imagination, but was not cemented to the degree that it would become, because now it is an indelible part of the assassination myth, even though Caesar almost certainly never said it. It's in none of the contemporary histories. It only starts showing up a couple hundred years after he died. It's possible at the time Caesar said, you too, my boy, to Brutus, but even that is uncertain. But there's some ones of less historical necessity. Lend me your ears is a phrase that comes from the friends Roman countrymen speak that Mark Antony gives at Caesar's funeral. It's Greek to me is something that Casca says when he's talking about Cicero speaking when he can't understand him. The fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. It's something that's been quoted and parodied and adapted into a lot of things and titles, especially a YA book by John Green called The Fault in Our Stars, which is very good. Cowards die many times before their death. The valiant never taste of death but once. It's often adapted into a sentence like, the coward dies a thousand deaths, the brave but one, which is something that appears in Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. But that also originates in Julius Caesar's Shakespeare. And finally, one that I didn't know, but I guess I'm not too surprised, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war is something spoken by Julius Caesar in this play. Kind of interesting. This was obviously never a play designed to be a stand-in for history class. But it's probably the best history that Shakespeare wrote. I would say that this is the highest art that Shakespeare's histories reached. It was written right in the middle of his plays. He had already written Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream, but he had not yet written some of his greats, Hamlet, Macbeth, or Twelfth Night. And this was 1599. Shakespeare was writing 1644 years after Julius Caesar's death. And it's been almost four centuries since the play came out. It's amazing to me that we still learn so much about something that was so important even then, just by assembling alternate sources. Yeah, I always have some trouble enjoying Shakespeare. I think it's interesting to think about what words or quotes or tropes were invented or crystallized by Shakespeare, but I can't say that I have a deep, unabiding love for his prose. I think it's just a little too divorced from our modern language, as much as it is still English. Well... This has been a small detour into Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks.